Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 12th, 2017, and this is episode 1929 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for you today because, well... Chef Keith Snow is joining us uh, from the Expert Council. It's the second interview of the year and second interview with an Expert Council member. Uh, Chef's been on a bunch of times to talk to us, and of course he's he's been on uh, about every other week for Expert Council shows, asking your questions about cooking and kitchen gear and stuff like that. Been with the show one way or another as a guest, a supporter, an advertiser uh, for I think five or six years. That has how long that relationship's gone on, and just really great about taking care of you guys that are his customers as well or fans of his podcast and YouTube channel. Today he's on to talk to us about some. Something really cool. Chef Keith uh, has gone and spent the the last half of last year really, and and put together a course on how to cook from your preps. He's calling food storage feast. It's really cool, and it's what we're going to talk about today. And I'll have him on in just a minute to do that. Before that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about a hundred trees, vines, and bushes from Bob Wells Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bob Wells is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. Hey, folks. When I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was SafeCastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you can imagine for your prepping needs. And with SafeCastle, I do mean everything. Check out SafeCastle.com today to learn more. And our TSP Business Directory sponsor of the day today is AntStand. The AntStand is an extremely portable laptop stand that raises your laptop to reduce neck and shoulder pain when packed away. It will fit in the same case as your laptop. Paul has been listening to TSP since the Jetta days, and has been producing these stands for over a year. You can check out AntStand at the TSP Business Directory at tspbiz.com. Anyway, uh, that's a cool one. I, 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 you know, I saw it today when I, when I, when I was setting it up, and I realized there's so many cool things in the TSP business directory. Someday just 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 check it out. Just check out what's there. It's amazing when you look at that, you're seeing so many businesses that support this community and I, I would reckon about half of them or more are businesses started out of this community. In other words, they're all community community members, but I bet about half are people that started the business since they started becoming part of the TSP community. It it is an amazing thing. I don't talk about it probably as much as I should, but you should check it out. Uh, Next up, let us take a look at the year that was the episode in the year 1929. You you know what's going to be included in this, right? I mean, unless you had the worst history teacher ever. I I just mean 1929. Ah! Here it comes. First up, though, we have The Universe is Spooky. 
Spooky Action at a Distance from Albert Einstein. We're not going to read that one, even though it's really cool, and you should go check it out yourself at TSP Wiki. Uh, we are going to read it. Your stockbroker has stepped out for a moment. Before that, though, notable births born this year. Martin Luther King Jr., Yassar Arafat, leader of the Palestine Liberation Organization, an all-around pain in the neck. Uh, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, first lady and later the wife of Aristotle Onassis. Gaston Glock, who is living yet today in the manufacture of curtain rods and the Austrian Glock 17 and later models. In entertainment, Grace Kelly is born. Audrey Hepburn, Gary Anderson, Ed Asner, who is also living. We are, we are finding more and more people that are born in our, our years, uh, to be living because we're getting closer to now, right? The world is starting to look a lot more like the world we know. In other news, Vatican City is now an independent state. Until now, the various popes avoided the question, so the relationship with Italy had been up in the air. Germany, France, and the United States agree not to declare war on each other. Well, that's done it then, right? We can move on. Uh, yeah. The Geneva Convention is signed. World War I revealed flaws in previous agreement over prisoners of war and the treatment of civilians during war. So this will fix it. Shudder. And the Hebron Massacre. Arabs are killing Jews in Palestine. This is the start of decades of fighting to come. Let's check in on our stockbroker again. Your stockbroker has stepped out for a moment. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription... XYZ-32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished, and so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of the high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. Bill's story from the book Alcoholics Anonymous, page 4. Unemployment is 3%, a real 3%. The New York Stock Exchange has hit record highs. But there are signs of trouble. Two years ago, the German stock exchange crashed after fears of economic crash were expressed by their national bank. The U.S. Federal Reserve has expressed similar fears early this year, causing a slide in stock prices. National City Bank is able to stop the slide by offering short-term loans, but in September, a British investor is convicted of fraud. So the London exchange crashes. This causes more instability in the New York stock exchange, so some investors decide to get out. It is now October. Like a flock of geese in autumn, the market suddenly goes south. Stock prices drop, uh, margins are called. But without enough money to cover the account, more stocks are sold at bargain prices. Stocks tumble and stockbrokers accidentally fall out windows. Perhaps their wives will benefit from the life insurance. But these men are done. At this time, optimists believe the market will come back soon. But it will be another seven years of we're back, we're not, we're back, we're not. In the meantime, the money supply will contract. Deflation will make buying goods more attractive if you have a job, but your employer's costs will jump. Unemployment will soar to 25%, a real 25%. Can government fix this? It is the age of economic reconstruction known as socialism. Investors will wait for government to fix this. So begins the Great Depression. My take by Alex Shrug. After stocks have tumbled and investors are still licking their wounds, what the government does next determines how long the pain will last. There are things that government could do to help in an economic recovery, but it is useless to talk about them. Dropping money from helicopters sounds funny, but the key to that strategy is that it is not repeated, thus not expected the next time. There is always the next time. When President Reagan was faced with a similar 
stock market crash. The media asked him what he was going to do to heal the country. Apparently not a damn thing. When business saw that Reagan wasn't going to fix it, they got off their duffs and fixed it themselves reasonably quickly, as I recall. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's what people today that are younger don't understand, or people that were around in the 80s and you know were even a little bit older than me, Uh, didn't pay attention back then for whatever reason. You know, I was probably uh, 16, 17. It was 1987 was the crash that Alex was talking about under Reagan. And uh, I was in the middle of an economic class. That's the only reason I was actually really paying attention at that age. And uh, I remember it was it was a very quick recovery from that crash. And it was mainly because Reagan did say, I'm not going to do jack shit. I'm not doing nothing. Markets take care of themselves. And it's amazing then, businesses figure out how to adapt. But what's happened now is the market has become a spoiled brat. It's become a spoiled brat, and it expects federal intervention from both the federal government and the Federal Reserve whenever anything's not quite exactly the way that they want it to be. To the point where the the major institutional investors can actually do some things to drop stock prices just to get the Fed to, to step in and do some more of what they want them to do. It's the, the, the blind leading the stupid is what we have. We have a bipolar market. Um, but right now the market is at an all-time high. That scares me a little bit, but I, I don't think we're on the precipice of decline just yet. I think we'll have to wait to see what happens under the new administration and how long can that be sustained. There's a very psychological thing about to happen, though. Very psychological thing. Sooner or later, the Dow will creep past 20,000. And then we have to see what's going to happen with the euphoria. Will people become ridiculously stupid? Or will they become more conservative? Will it be the time of the bulls? Or will it be the time of the bears or the bull bears? What animal spirits will take over? We don't really know. Because right now, while I think there's some good things economically for the United States in the future, the market's already priced them in and is overvalued. It's it's a very scary position to be in. There's money to be made in the market right now, but ugh, there was money to be made in the market in 1929, all the way up till this day. All the way up till this day. In fact, on that day, there was a ton of money to be made if the position was on the other side of things. Call that... Okay, you know? Anyway, so with that, let's talk about happier things. Let's talk about eating like a king out of your preps with Chef Keith Snow. With that, hey, Keith, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, thanks for having me. Man, I'm glad to have you here today. Um, you're on our expert council. You've been around, I think the first time you were on the show was like back in 2010 or 11 or something like that. So you've been around a long time, but we do have new people tuning in all the time, and a lot of people, even if they know you, they're not really familiar with your backstory. So can you talk about, you know, how did you come up in the world as a chef? What made you want to do that, and, and how did it lead you to the point where now you're kind of doing your own thing under your own brand? Well, uh, see if I can condense it down in, in a short time. Well, I, I started cooking literally when I was 14 years old uh, by mistake. I, I took a, a weekend gig for a friend who was a dishwasher. He had to go away for vacation. So I uh, I did that one weekend, then he said, what about next weekend? I did it the next weekend, and then he uh, wound up basically giving me the job. So as at 14, I was washing dishes in a busy restaurant in, in uh, New Jersey, and the chef took a liking to me, and uh, 
he started teaching me how to cook and I saw a lot of stuff go on in the restaurant and, you know, started to learn the ropes. And this guy was really super disciplined. And, uh, I actually never in my adult life, I never, you know, went back and, and said hi to the guy. He wound up dying a few years ago and he never, he never really knew that starting me out, um, you know, washing dishes and cooking in his restaurant would, would take me all the way through this career where I wrote cookbooks and film television shows. And I kind of regretted that because I had thought about it. But anyway, I did that for a few years in high school and then I went on to college and, uh, I studied economics and finance and always worked in restaurants. And that was something that, you know, I did for beer money. But, um, the whole time I was gaining a, a really terrific education in the culinary world. And I cooked at restaurants in, I think, seven states. And they were all different. I mean, I cooked the Biltmore Estate in uh, North Carolina. I worked in fine dining restaurants, golf clubs in Florida, resorts in California, a seafood restaurant in California. And eventually I wound up as the executive chef of a major ski resort. And that was a, an eye-opening experience because I had a lot of uh, direct reports, 13 chefs that reported to me about $9 million in food and beverage sales. We had 13 outlets, everything from uh, coffee shops to skier cafeterias to fine dining to opera ski. We had a $3 million banquet facility. So it was a big job. And during that process, there was always the media, the local media would always want interviews and want to know about new restaurants. And we were always creating new concepts and new restaurants. So we would we would be promoting them locally and, you know, throughout the state of Colorado. And uh, I started doing interviews all the time and, you know, little TV gigs. And um, I used to do the morning show down in Denver a couple of times. I remember one time I was on and there was this dude there with a golden spoon. And he I had never heard of him, but he was the official taster for the um, some brand of ice cream. And this guy, so he did a segment, and then I was right up after him. But it was kind of interesting. He had a you know, literally a solid gold little spoon for tasting. But that was um, it was an interesting time, and it it gave me a taste for doing uh, media stuff. And and then our daughter was born, and that kind of changed everything for me because we lived at 9,800 feet above sea level, and people just don't really understand what that's like. Uh, I had one restaurant at 11,400 feet. And it would take, I don't know, an hour to boil potatoes because the boiling point was so low due to the altitude. And that altitude definitely had an effect. You know, you're, you were bundled up pretty much, you know, eight months of the year. And it could be in the 30s at night in July. So it wasn't a great climate to raise a family in, in my opinion. I mean, there's plenty of people that do it. But um, so we we had our, our daughter. Uh, she's 14 now. And we decided that we would uh, move to a farm in North Carolina. And uh, that was an interesting time because um, I just went and bought property. My wife didn't even look at it. I just flew out there looked at a couple of pieces and gave an earnest money check. And I bought a 12 acre piece. We later built um, a barn on it. We had uh, Morton Buildings come in. They put in put in a really nice like a 50 by 60 barn and uh, we had a living quarters in there and we eventually built a house and during that period I started um, my website harvesting that was about I don't know 2005 after a few years of living there and um, it was interesting because this was a time when people were 
just crazy about low carb foods. Everything was low carb, low carb, low carb, and nobody really gave a hoot about farm to table. And that's the stuff that I was interested in. And I was meeting farmers and going to farm markets and growing vegetables and canning vegetables and meeting producers, dairy people, drinking raw milk, you know, making butter. We had goats. Um, we had cows at one point. So we started doing all those things and really getting into this farm to table thing. But like I said, it really hadn't caught on yet. And uh, eventually we were working with Whole Foods doing some things and I eventually was involved with founding the Slow Food chapter in South Carolina where we live near. And um, and then it kind of happened. Then all of a sudden people, farmers markets started booming. And I remember the Ball Jar Company approached me and they wanted to do this major um, expansion into, you know, promoting canning and homesteading. And and uh, they were like all gung-ho to, to have me as their spokesperson. And, and what happened was um, they had a problem with the seals on their jars and they had to retool everything. And that deal got squashed, which was actually a good thing because I wound up doing some television shows. And during all of this, this movement really started to gain um, – you know, massive amount of steam. So people were moving out to the country. They were raising food. They were homesteading. And uh, it was an exciting time for me because that was something that I was really into. So I was producing content on my website for that, um, YouTube videos, and it just took off from there. And eventually, um, eventually we did television show. And then I had a cookbook deal come in. I had a couple of people approach me for a cookbook. I finally did the Harvest Eating Cookbook. I started it, I think it was in 2008, right when George Bush came on and told us the world was ending with the financial collapse. And that was an eye-opening experience for me because I didn't know much about that kind of thing. So I just went and I, I wrote my cookbook. It took about a year to do that. And um, I started at that point to really kind of switch gears from just homesteading and then trying to learn about prepping. And uh, I think it's funny that I'm talking to you because when I decided after 2008, you know, I was out touring with my cookbook, doing events literally all over. And I had an agent in New York City and I would do, you know, I was a chef on a cruise to Alaska. I was doing Disney World events, big, um, you know, shows in New York City, um, Edible Garden at the New York Botanical botanical garden with Martha Stewart, all, all kinds of high profile events. And I was away from home and my wife was home. We had two kids at the time with one coming. And, you know, I used to lay down thinking, man, you know, with, with all this craziness with the economy, I mean, we really don't have much, you know, food in the pantry. I mean, we had some stuff more than most people, but most of it was fresh, fancy food. And that's when I went on the internet and I started learning about prepping. And the first person that I came across was you being interviewed with uh, Judge Napolitano. I think it was Fox News or something. And, uh, of course, I thought, this guy's a nut. But what he's saying, <laughs> actually, it actually makes sense. And then I, then I looked around and I thought, no, he's actually the sane one. There were a lot of real crazies out there um, talking about prepping. And, and that's kind of when I started to get into this whole preparedness world and started thinking that, you know, maybe I had to put some more things in the pantry. And uh, that's that's kind of how it all, all came around. 
Well, that's cool. And I know that you've embraced food storage. Um, probably not a big stretch for a chef to want to do. Um, but in that time, you've kind of looked around at the whole space. And I know that you feel that a lot of people, their food storage plans really just kind of fails. Can you kind of talk about why you think most food storage plans just are failures? Um, I think most people make uh, kind of like rash decisions. They they realize, you know, this makes sense, but then they go onto the Internet and they invest in the wrong things. And that's what I see most of the time where people will just go from not having anything in their pantry, just being completely unprepared for – I mean they couldn't live for two days out of their pantry. And you'd be surprised how many people kind of fit into that uh, scenario so they, they decide, all right, maybe I should do something about this. But then they go about it the wrong way, and they'll go onto the Internet, and they'll buy um, you know, anything from 72-hour kits all the way up to three-month supplies, year supply, and they buy the wrong foods. And I say that because, I mean, you have to kind of step back and think about it. I mean, if you needed to be cooking strictly out of your pantry, for instance, um, you want foods that – your family is going to like. And this is a major problem because a lot of these meals out there and, and people will understand, they'll probably laugh when I say, you know, cheesy chicken and rice and blue ribbon potato chowder and chili mac with beans. And you see all these type of foods and multiple manufacturers will sell that kind of stuff. And, you know, obviously it's better than nothing. But to me, where I mean, I'm a person and my whole family, we, we get a lot of enjoyment from food. Uh, it's, you know, it's the main event of my life. I couldn't imagine having to survive and feed that kind of crap to my family. So I think that's where people initially go wrong is investing in foods that are just don't taste good. And that's, that's a huge problem. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, a lot of the long-term bulk commodities that people store seem a bit like the makings of prison food. You know, you go, Oliver Twist, may I please have some more, you know, gruel, sir, or something like that. Um, how do you learn to make great meals that you'll want to eat every day from such basic ingredients? <laughs> well, I guess the the first thing to, to admit is, yeah, that's it's probably true because if you look at what these ingredients are, they all have one thing in common. You know, we're talking about rice, beans, wheat, corn. Um, things like that, they store a long time, they're inexpensive, but they're bland as hell. And you can mess them up quickly. And I think of, you know, I've been to people's homes and they've served rice. And it was just horrible, lumpy, sticky, miserable rice. And that kind of, um, you know, lack of cooking skill can really make foods that are already bland and tend to be a little difficult to cook even more miserable. So there, there's definitely an advantage for me because I've got the culinary background. But if you take those ingredients and you work with them in a way where you blend um, some interesting ingredients, some culinary technique, you can wind up with really interesting and delicious foods. And, and uh, I always think about you know, things that I really like and how I can, um, you know, massage them into some of these foods. And a, an example I did just the other day was I made these um, pancakes. I call them kettle corn pancakes. And it's freshly ground cornmeal. And that's stone ground type of cornmeal, or you can just grind it with a grinder. And you can't just take something like that and, 
you know, boil it for a few seconds because it's going to be like gravel. So there's techniques behind it, like put boiling water on it, mix it, and letting it steep for 20 minutes. And then all of a sudden when you turn it into something else, it actually tastes good and has a pleasant texture. But you have to be inventive and creative. So I, I recently took this fresh cornmeal, and I've just used things out of the pantry, evaporated milk, um, egg replacer, and salt and sugar, and I create these kettle corn pancakes that are, man, they're just unbelievable. I mean, they're salty, they're sweet, they're satisfying, they've got a great texture. So that's just one example. I mean, another one would be something like Thai fried rice, where you could take rice, and if you've got some bottled sauces and, and things like that in your pantry, and this goes to making sure you've got an extensive pantry. I mean, if it just has rice, beans, and wheat, and maybe sugar and salt, you're, you're going to be hurting when it comes time to making the food um, exciting. But if you've got other ingredients, and this is what we teach in the course, is making sure that you, you know, you're stocking your pantry with the right tools. Because you'd be amazed what a little bottle of soy sauce can do to many different meals. So it's being inventive, it's using ingredients wisely, and it's having a, uh, you know, a properly stocked pantry. Very cool. And I, I mean, the other thing I would think with this when it comes to affordability, when we look at the most basic things that people store, which are going to be your grains, your dry legumes, um, things like corn that kind of sits between grain and some other things, amaranths, quinoas, rice, all of this stuff, it is the... It is the food, and I mean this in no offensive way, it is the food of the poor throughout the world. It is the most affordable form of calories that you can get your hands on. And so if you can overcome the challenge of making it taste good, then it probably can help people cook regularly from their storage and at the same time actually cut their grocery bill. Yeah, no, that's a good point. If you look, if you look at the world, you know, going back couple thousand years, every successful population out there generally has a diet that's surrounded um, by, you know, some type of, of starch, carbohydrate starch, whether it be rice in Asia, um, in the, you know, Middle East, wheat and bulgur, things like that, the Aztecs and the Mexicans, corn, um, potatoes. These are foods that are inexpensive, and are a high starch content. But the interesting thing, if you think about it, um, those type of ingredients, each kind of area of the world, you know, I talk about Thailand, Mexican food, uh, Middle Eastern food, um, Spanish food, Italian food, they all have tons and tons of dishes that are based on these type of foods. You know, a couple of quick examples. You know, I just mentioned Thai fried rice. In Thailand, they do, and Asia in general, They do amazing things with rice, where that's the center of the plate. That's 80, 85, 90% of the meal is rice, and they add other things to it, a little bit of meat, um, some vegetables, some seasonings, curry paste, whatever. And then you've got Mexico, where they put all types of things, cilantro, onions, garlic, roasted tomatoes and rice. Um, look at Italy. Look what they do with rice in Italy, risotto. I mean, this is the food of the, of the peasant. But you can get 20 bucks for it in a restaurant because you call it risotto and, and Americans fall for it. But it's basically, you know, it's rice with some stock and some vegetables in most cases. So what's interesting about cooking with these bland sort of subsistence 
um, poor people foodstuffs is if you blend uh, cultural ingredients in there, and I'm a huge proponent of this in food storage, then all of a sudden uh, you've got amazing food. I mean, who wouldn't love just a delicious you know, bowl of uh, porcini mushroom risotto? This stuff stores. I mean, it, it's, it's three or four ingredients. It's nothing. So instead of that clumpy, disgusting bowl of you know, Uncle Ben's rice, you could have uh, porcini mushroom risotto in, in 25 minutes right out of your pantry. And if you start thinking like this and, and cooking inventive meals using these type of foods, all of a sudden everybody's on board. The whole family's in. Um, you know, th- those guys out there that have trouble convincing their wives, you know, we should be prepping. I think they go about it the wrong way. I mean, telling your wife you need, you know, a new AR-15 and you really should invest in body armor. Most women aren't going to get that. But if you say, listen, we need to start learning how to cook from our preps and start turning out meals using things that are in your pantry, she's going to get on board a lot quicker than, than uh, the previous example. Well, I think you could you could you could be really subversive, uh, subversive, I guess, you know, in in the most positive way, because you could take and go out and get small amounts of these things, start cooking some really good food, you know, and then saying, you know, if we bought this in a little bit larger quantities, we would save even more money. <laughs> so then you're storing food, and you get, now you're prepping, and the reluctant spouse on, and it's not always women either. It's it's I I've been shocked at how many. Women I've heard from in this audience that they have a hard time getting the guy on board with prepping. Um, but yeah, if you're just cooking food and well, you know, we can save money by buying it in, in bulk. All of a sudden that pantry's full. You're good for, you know, two months of being able to cook and everybody's happy and they don't know you're prepping. And one day you wake up and hey, we got a new AR anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I think if you, I mean, your statement, um, store what you eat and cook what you store. That's really important too. Like going back to the very first question and what what mistakes do people make? Um, people aren't eating powdered, you know, cheesy chicken broccoli that doesn't have any chicken in it anyway. They're not eating that. So if you go out and stock up on that, you're you're just setting yourself up for disaster. But in in your example there, if you start um, cooking things from your pantry that you actually like, those are the type of foods that you want to store. And trust me, when you do this kind of thing, and I've done it, like before um, really getting into – I've been wanting to make this course for a couple of years. But before doing it, I mean, I really needed to believe in it for me. I mean, it had to work for me and my family because I wasn't going to recommend people do things that we didn't like to do. So I think it was April of, of 2016. I just – I said, that's it because we literally have about $2,000 a month grocery bill. Now, a lot of people are like, What? Now, you have to understand I develop recipes for a living uh, for the website and all that. So I, I have more food than – I buy more food than most people. But we we eat a lot of fresh foods. We eat you know quite a bit of meat and vegetables and, and ingredients that may be a little fancy. Now, I decided in April that I was going to go whole hog into, the, into the, the preps. So I started cooking out of our preps using – these inexpensive grains and, and uh, a lot of canned food and dehydrated stuff. And I just wanted to see how these picky kids of mine, because they've got pretty well-developed palates uh, from all the fine foods that they've eaten over the years, if they didn't want to eat it, I'd have a problem serving it to them. But after about a month of doing this, everybody in the house, I mean, they loved the meals. I mean, there were delicious meals coming out. 
And I, I would say that the amount of meat was drastically reduced because you don't need always to have a big steak. And, oh, by the way, over on the side there is a little – there's some mashed potatoes and some, you know, bland peas. If you use these starches and you blend other things in with some of the examples I just gave, you know, risotto, I mean, uh, Mexican rice with chicken, Thai fried rice, uh, whatever it might be, you start cooking like this, you're going to see your grocery bill drop. And I think it develops a lot of skills because you start learning how to uh, handle these foods. I mean, just putting them in a closet somewhere and never coming to it until you need to, that's a recipe for disaster. You know, it's, it's almost like the, the people that we need home defense. They go out and they buy a shotgun, a couple of cases of shells, they put the thing in the closet and they just have never trained with it. I mean, it's pretty much useless in an emergency like that. So you need to be cooking with these things, but you'll find that you can save a lot of money. And, you know, going back to the reluctant spouse or vice versa, a lot of people want to do more things to become prepared, but there's costs with everything. I mean, maybe some people, I know this guy in Montana, he wanted to get this hand pump for his well. And this thing was solid stainless steel. I mean, it, it was pretty expensive. And he just, no, I got to get it. I got to get it. And, you know, his, him and his wife just weren't on board with it. But if you've got things like that that you want to buy, you can start employing the techniques that I talk about in this course. You will see a, a great reduction in groceries. And people don't understand now, I'm an extreme case, $2,000 a month for grocery. I mean, who the heck does that? But if you look at your bills, if people are actually looking at their budget on a month-to-month -month basis, food is going to be a huge part of it. And most people are eating out way too much. I mean, they're, they're eating out a lot. They're taking in food. They're just not, um, they're not doing it in a very sort of uh, economic way. And if you start employing these techniques and practicing cooking out of your pantry and you don't have to like, you know, shut off the breakers, we're going to have, you know, miserable mashed potatoes tonight and you're going to like it. You don't need to do that. <laughs> you just need to start thinking about it and prepare some meals. And, um, eventually you'll see, you'll save money, you'll be eating really well. And, and the whole time you're gaining, you know, critical knowledge. Yeah, and I mean, to me, it seems like learning to cook gourmet meals from your storage food is kind of like the ultimate win-win survival skill. It's like equally valid in good times and bad, which is kind of what we teach here. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And again, you don't want to learn to do this under the gun because that's the wrong time. I mean, I was just thinking back a couple months ago, Hurricane Matthew came came through. And uh, when we were living in Florida and vacationing in this one place for years, we've got a lot of friends down there. I mean, this is as modern as you could be. And they haven't seen any hurricanes for a while. And Hurricane Matthew came up and it didn't even hit them. It just kind of was offshore a bit. But this dude, this buddy of mine, I've known this guy since 1988. He was calling me up. He's like, dude, Publix is cleared out, man. There's no food. There's a couple bags of bread, and then there were fist fights at the gas station where we used to go all the time. And that place was a zoo getting in there when, when there was gas. I couldn't imagine it. But you have a situation like that, and all of a sudden, um, if your pantry's bare, you're kind of screwed. But if, you, if you're doing these kind of things and you go back to the win-win, if you're um, building up your stores and using them. I mean, I don't suggest anybody, everyone should have some emergency food, no, no doubt about it. But if you're, um, if you're regularly 
building up and buying the things that you like and cooking them and building up your pantry. Um, when that storm comes, whether it be an ice storm or, or, or something like that, you know, you don't have that panic factor because, I mean, people don't understand how important food is. It is just, I mean, we all like food, but, man, I, I think they say within, what, a week or two, people will, will go to cannibalism if there's no food. Now, uh, of course, we hope it'll never get to that. Yeah, but. we hope it won't. But, I mean, to, to your point, I think it was 48 hours after Sandy that people in quite affluent areas of New York were climbing into dumpsters. Yeah, and that was an interesting thing. When I when I got into doing this course, I mean, I haven't written a cookbook already. Um, I couldn't stand to go back and forth between my editor. It was just I wanted to focus on the recipes, but the written content was tough. So this time around, uh, I'm working with a homesteader buddy of mine from Montana who's an excellent writer, and he's handling all the uh, written part of the course. And in developing the course materials, um, when we started looking at some of the drafts of the course – I was surprised how many events that people just may not, I mean, Sandy was one of them, some of these hurricanes, but over the past couple of decades, there have been more than like handfuls of, of events where, where food has been gone from supermarkets. So this isn't a, this isn't just, you know, the EMP or alien invasion that, that people should worry about. Because like you said, with Sandy, there was, there was major trouble. People dumpster diving, um, you know, bartering for a couple gallons of gas. And obviously, for those in the New York metropolitan area, you know, this is as modern and as crowded as a place. I mean, you figured there'd be food around there, but they were hurting. Yeah, they they were. I mean, it was uh, it, it was eye-opening even to me. I mean, I was deep into this stuff, and I always said that there was, you know, potential for uh, people to go really low really fast. And I know there's a whole group of people out there. They call them what freegans or whatever. They 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 only eat food that's free out of garbage. And I know a lot of food that shouldn't be thrown away gets thrown away. But I also know that the people that were in those dumpsters were people that three days before that, if you gave them a hundred dollar bill to eat something out of the bottom of a dumpster, they would have never done it. And in that moment, reality struck home. You know that, and, and I mean, part of the reason that was a problem is you know what New York City is like: tiny apartments. Remember, I don't know if you remember way back, I did a, a story on the kitchenistas. Uh, they were like keeping their clothes in their oven because they had no no closet space, and <laughs> and, and their 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 response was, "I eat out every night, so why would I even worry about having food in the house?" And you just like, oh my god, the bubble you people live in. And the the approach you're taking with, hey, let's just use these staples that are economic and 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 we're still going to cook at a gourmet level, you know, I think that's that that's really awesome. I, kind of a side note there, I just as I say that word, I think that maybe people would like to hear from you on a kind of offshoot here, the the different thinking of being a gourmet cook versus a chef because like. And this is something people don't get. Like people try to emulate what chefs do in restaurants at home. And when you were a you know a, a chef in a restaurant, you're running the whole kitchen. You have a sous chef, you have a staff, one sauce that you might be using. Some guy named Julio showed up at six o'clock in the morning and started making it. But when you, you you take those techniques and those skills, but you translate them a little bit differently as a home cook, don't you? No, definitely. And that's um, that, that's a, that's a great point because when you're when you're in a restaurant and and you are making foods that are complicated that require a lot of labor, 
Uh, we used to do this, just like you said, we had stocks that we would start. Uh, somebody would start them at, you know, 1030 at night and they would, it's called rolling a stock. We would roll a stock. The restaurant would be closed, but stocks would be rolling all night long. And then the morning cook would come in and strain and clarify and all that. Uh, that's, um, that's a lot of heavy lifting. Now, what I'm trying to teach in the course is easy foods that are super delicious that, that add some technique, um, to them that, you know, it's definitely stuff that I've learned through the years. You know, a good example would be just bread baking. I mean, people don't understand. People have wheat in the in their stored pantry, but they've never baked a loaf of bread in their life. And baking bread, while, I mean, it sounds easy, it's easy to mess it up. And when you're storing grains, um, when you go to the store and you buy flour, it says on the bag, whole wheat flour. It says bread flour. It says all-purpose flour. It doesn't tell you the type of wheat berry that was used to make that. Now, people are a little numb about this stuff, but there are lots of different varieties of wheat. And wheat grows out of the ground, and then there's wheat berries, and that's the seeds from the wheat plant. Those are harvested, threshed, you've got wheat berries. Each wheat berry is different, and those need to be ground up, and and they do different things. So if you're storing the wheat berries that are used to make a a high-protein uh, whole wheat flour, for instance, and then all of a sudden you've got to make bread with that. You're going to be in for a rude awakening. Now, I like whole wheat bread, but very few breads are 100% whole wheat. Usually they've got other things in them. And it's the same thing for anything. Let's say you wanted to make a pizza. Uh, whole wheat is not going to make a great pizza. So those are just some of the things that you need to know about the products. But then how do you make a great loaf of bread? I mean, it's something that I teach in the course are simple techniques that make really great bread. So we've got some bread recipes in that show people how to grind the grain, and it shows what type of you – know, you can certainly make it now with flour from the store, but then it shows you how to shape it and how to make something really interesting. And, and that's just one example, but there's, there's other things that can be done. Like we have a, a really simple sauce on one of our pasta dishes, and it's, it's literally like four ingredients, and they're put into a pot, and they cook for about – I don't know, 20 minutes. And then you've got a pasta sauce. And obviously, you know that um, I've manufactured and formulated all these fancy pasta sauces for years. But this particular one that's in the course, this isn't anything where you need a bunch of fancy ingredients. I mean, you use canned butter, canned tomatoes, um, salt, and that's it. And you cook this for a few minutes, and all of a sudden, pasta lasts for centuries in your pantry. Now you've got something that People write about in the New York Times these type of simple sauces, and it's really awesome. And and there's a zillion examples of using your culinary skills, uh, whether it's making substitutions for things, whether it's taking super bland foods. I mean, like um, potato flakes. Man, I never thought in all the years I spent, you know, working on developing restaurant menus and all the, the yeah, you're fancy the guy meals. that has like the the ultimate freaking Thanksgiving mashed potato, right? Like the first year I made your version of mashed potatoes, people were like, "How the hell did you do this?" And then now you're going to use potato flakes. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's been interesting um, because they're, they're real. It's a real low brow ingredient, and, and most uh, most chefs are not going to they're not going to cook with them, but they're certainly not going to admit on a radio show as big as this one that they're cooking with them. But I find it to be a really interesting challenge in that, uh, I mean, potato flakes are interesting because 
if you just cook them with water and salt, they taste like crap. But if you do other things to them and focus on things in your pantry, canned butter, you can use freeze-dried sour cream. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do, adding a little stock in there, um, some herbs, some garlic, whatever it might be, cheese, bacon. You can make mashed potatoes. Like we have one one recipe, it's like stuffed chilies, and then it's, uh, you know, it's mashed potatoes with um, bacon and a little cheddar cheese stuffed into um, like hatch chilies, which is awesome. But I remember when I was making that, formulating that recipe, I mean, before I even stuffed the chilies, I mean, the, the mashed potatoes were unbelievable. I mean, I just said that. I mean, you could scrap the chilies and put this in a bowl and everyone's loving it. So th- there's ways to make this stuff really satisfying. And the other thing that's cool about these foods, you know, you talk about these peasant foods, rice, beans, you know, bread, potatoes. These are all um, comfort foods. And if you think about it, comfort foods are what? They're comforting. I mean, they're, you know, it's not, it's not like, I don't know, alfalfa sprouts, which aren't comforting. I mean, I like them, but. It, you know, no, they're not comforting. I, 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 I've used sprouts here and there, and, and I like sprouted sunflower seeds best, but, you know, I've never, like, been sitting around on, like, a cold winter's day, and I'm just gonna, you know, like, indulge in something and thought, you know what, honey? We should go get some alfalfa sprouts and just pig out on them. That's that's never happened. I'll I'll confess to that. Yeah, you know the the shaved fennel salad with rose water and you know fresh oregano. That's great and all, but uh, most guys and families in, in an emergency or or on a Saturday night in front of the the football game, they're going to want comfort foods, and that and that's what's great about this type of cooking and what I found. Um, why the family liked it so much because the meals were really comforting. Another thing that we do, and I've actually, um, I've got the, the, uh, recipe and the video produced. We just need to upload it, but it's a, it's an old Irish dish called coal cannon. And that's just basically potatoes and cabbage. And you can use other things. You could certainly use kale out of the garden. And that's what I was doing when I was formulating this recipe. But it's basically potatoes with some greens cooked into it, but it's extremely satisfying. I mean, it's thick. You can put a pat of butter on it. I mean, it's, it's real food, stick-to-your-ribs kind of stuff. Didn't you tell me something? You were talking about the potatoes. We were talking offline the other day about uh, salt cod and potato cakes or something like that. Oh, yeah. That's um, that's another thing that's interesting. And this is where when you you know step back and, and kind of do this with a little bit of uh, pre-thought, you can put things in your pantry like salt cod. Now, this is something – talk about – um, long-term storable foods. I mean, this was invented before refrigeration. And, you know, people have been doing this for millennia. And you take fish and you salt them and leave them out in the sun. And I'm not just saying, you know, a pinch of salt. I mean, they're, they've got a lot of salt. They're pack, packed in salt. And that, yeah, removes all the moisture. And that sodium gets in there. And those things are impermeable to bugs and bacteria because they cannot stand salt. So it makes something that's very storable. And you can buy this. And it, I mean, it'll keep forever in your pantry. You can buy it at supermarkets, club stores, online, and you mix that with potato flakes in the right way. I mean, one of the dishes on the on the course is, is salt cod potato cakes, and it's a mixture of mashed potatoes that you make with potato flakes, some of this salt cod, some um, onion, and it's all mixed together, and then it's fried in a pan with oil, and you've got something that's just delicious. And I make a little uh, a remoulade sauce with it in the course. But all of a sudden, you've got that meaty, fishy texture and the potatoes. I mean, it's an unbelievable meal. And again, it's totally 
not what people would think about, um, you know, it's not an MRE. I mean, it's not a bag of cheesy chicken rice. Yeah, definitely. But that's an example of something that people in today's day and age need some instruction because you don't just grab a, and I mean, if you've never seen a piece of salt cod before, it's like a board. You know, I mean, you could hit somebody with it and do some damage to them. It, it's, <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it seems completely inedible. And in reality, it is inedible in its form. It has to be transformed, which is simply done by soaking. Um, but then there's even a technique to that. Cause like if you just let it soak in water and you don't dump off the water and then let it soak some more, then it's soaking in salty water. So you only get so much of the salt out. So there's like a, a salt leaching procedure for that. And then, you know, you can kind of take it from there. But like, I, I've read a lot of reviews of salted cod on, uh, Amazon because I'm always looking for storable proteins. And, uh, there's a lot of these horrible reviews and you're, you read the review and go, are you dim or? you know, slow or do you, did you not take any time to research what to do? But there's so many things that we, like our ancestors ate this stuff all the time. They had to refrigeration's what? 120 years old or something like right. that. Right. So like there, there are techniques to using this stuff. No, that's, it's a great point. And that's, it's, it's just a, uh, it's just knowledge. If you have the knowledge to, to desalinate that stuff, because if you don't soak it and change the water out enough times, you know, back in high school, biology, whatever you learned about osmosis, the, uh, how sodium can travel in and out of cell walls, this is basically what you're doing. And if you don't do it properly, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's damn salty. And I know people that have made it and they've, you know, rehydrated it. They put some water on it and it got, you know, somewhat soft where they could cook with it. And they're like, wow, this is miserable. Well, you didn't, you didn't desalinate it. And people years ago that ate it, they they wouldn't have eaten it that way either. It wasn't that they were so desperate that they, they would eat something with that much salt. They just knew how to prepare it. And, you know, that's the same thing with just about any of these foods. I mean, there's there's lots of ways to screw things up if you don't have the knowledge. So it's a great point. So what do you say to the people that just say, well, I just buy a whole bunch of ready-made, freeze-dried, just-add-water meals, and I, I don't need to worry about cooking skills? Uh, I say again, you'll you'll be you'll be sad when 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 you need to get into those foods. Now, I do recommend having some of those meals around. Like, I think everybody should have a um, a to-go box of food, particularly if you've got kids, where you could just use you know take your camp stove and and add boiling water. And we take our kids camping and uh, sometimes just day hikes. And we did one this fall. We hiked to the top of this mountain and I uh, cooked some meals up there. You know, they're they're edible, but you don't really enjoy them. They're just it's just kind of. I think we had cheesy, no chili mac with beans, and then one other one. I tried a new one, and they're just not very good. I mean, they're they're good in a pinch. If you if you just hike the mountain and you're starving, yeah, you'll eat it. But if you had to eat that stuff day in and day out, you'd be in trouble. And that's what a lot of people do. They'll go ahead and they'll buy. And again, this is where deploying your precious funds properly um, in a food storage situation makes a lot of sense. If you go out and buy cases, and you can do it, cases and cases of these, you know, backpacking meals, or even worse, those dehydrated, you know, powdered mixes that you cook. Um, and those things take 25 minutes to cook. Some of them, like you'll you'll cut the bag open and pour this slop in there, and it's just like a colored powder, and you'll cook it for 25 minutes until it turns into you know, the gruel you described earlier. I mean, that stuff is inedible. But if you take those same dollars 
and buy freeze-dried chicken, um, freeze-dried vegetables. You can buy freeze-dried um, green onions. You can buy freeze-dried roast beef. There's a lot of different things that you can buy that are freeze-dried that last almost forever, and then with some skills, you can mix them together and make foods that actually work and taste good and are not miserable. And you have to understand, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm the, you know, God's gift to recipe creation, but these companies that create these foods, um, they have people that are putting together some foods that really just don't work. They don't taste good, and, and they all seem to do it. Now, I've been making recipes, you know, for, for decades with restaurants, writing menus, um, with cookbooks, with television shows. Each one of those television shows had three or four recipes that needed to be developed, tested, executed. And then, of course, the cookbook had 200 recipes in it and, and everything that I do online and on YouTube. A lot of recipe creation um, skills, yet still, when you're dealing with foods like we described that are super bland and uh, just by nature, you need some technical skills to make it work, and it's definitely challenging. And that's where I, where I said, I mean, I wanted to do this for a month with my own family to make sure that, you know, all these decades of culinary training actually could transfer over to something so simple like potato flakes or, you know, freeze-dried chicken. And it, it does take – not every recipe works, but the ones that I put out do work. And, you know, they use foods in a sensible manner. You know, you, like, like you said, you just uh, – you want to learn how to cook cook with the foods and not be reliant on opening a bag and putting hot water in it. Well, and I mean, from personal experience in time that I spent, you know, hiking the Appalachian Trail many, many years ago, I can tell you the guy that's hiking the trail that has, you know, the, the mountain house packets or whatever, he's the guy that's going on the day hike or like the weekender. When you see through hikers and they're making their dinner at night, they're throwing in some minute rice and maybe a, a foil pouch of chicken and some dried vegetables or something like that, they don't live on that food for very long. It, it's fine for its intended purpose, which is quick, easy, and foolproof. It doesn't taste that bad. It doesn't taste that good. It is what it is. It's one of those things where you go, I could eat it. And the hungrier you are, the more that's true. But long term, it's not something you want to live on. It, it really isn't. And I think some people even get confused. And what I mean by that is, I had one guy say, man, I ate this it was some kind of black bean chili from one of the providers, you know. And he said, it was. I couldn't believe it. It was one of the best things I ever ate. And I'm like, really? So we start talking, and I think he had gone like 14 hours without eating. He was tired. It was late at night. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't know that you would feel that way if you uh, you made it for lunch one day at home. And it, there's this, this, you know, when you're hungry, you'll eat anything. But the whole point of storing food is to not be hungry, to be able to feed yourself nourishing food when you need it. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point, and, and uh, I kind of spurred a little thought I, in doing research for the course and looking at I mean, because I wanted to design the recipes obviously with ingredients people could get, and I looked around at a lot of the um, ingredient suppliers that are making long-term storable stuff, and you know, there's brands out there that you know have turned into those kind of like um, you know multi-level marketing companies and all that, and they have ingredients which are. They're great on their own. I mean, freeze-dried chicken is is a good ingredient. But um, I remember watching this one chef for one of these companies put together this burrito. And what they're trying to do, and, it, and it's kind of, you know, it's, it's a little offensive because most people are pretty intelligent. If you, you know, if you're a food company and you put every ingredient you manufacture into the burrito, 
I mean, people are going to see through that because some things don't belong in a burrito, like like celery and, and peas. And, and I watched this guy put <laughs> corn and all this crap into it. And then, of course, he had to call it, what do we call it? Not the crap burrito, the loaded burrito. And it oh, just okay. is not good food. So some things just don't belong in food. And, I mean, you can't put every single ingredient in there and expect it to taste good because there's certain parameters, and you know, uh, I mean, there's certain things that taste good. And it's kind of like, you know, you make a pizza. There's certain things that go well on there. You know, peanut butter isn't one of them. So you, you, you have to follow some guidelines and some expected norms when you're creating these recipes. And uh, that's kind of what I try to do in the course is make things understandable, uh, comforting, recognizable, and not, you know, do things that are completely crazy. And that's what you see in some of these some of these dishes that are just, you know, barely edible. Yeah, and it, it, I, I know the company you're talking about, and uh, it, it I, this is why I mean, I've gotten heat from people over the years because I generally have a pretty negative view of multi-level marketing companies, but it's because I know how they operate, and, and the reason they're doing that is the people that become distributors in, in that, then they they have a certain volume every month that they have to buy or sell so that they can re retain their earnings on whoever else they recruit. And so they're on an auto ship, and they get a certain amount of that stuff every month. You know, they'll have like a minimum $50 or $100 a month purchase or whatever it ends up being. Well, so these people are loading up on all this food that they're telling everybody how great it is, and the company knows they have a problem. They got to get them used in it. So when they make something, instead of saying, well, you're going to make a burrito. Let's make a burrito, Keith, I, from, from, from that kind of food. Maybe some chicken cubes, right? Maybe some black beans, a little bit of rice, you know, some 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 peppers, and we got a burrito. We, we got a chicken black bean burrito. That, that sounds like a burrito to me. But, you know, we just auto-shipped out four cases of celery to everybody, so now we got to tell them something to do with it. Well, how about you use it to make freaking soup? I use, I don't know about you, I don't, I don't, like, so when I look at my vegetable storage, I break it into two categories with, uh, with dry goods. And one is, there are certain vegetables that if you just dehydrate them, They're never really useful again. I would put green beans into that category. A, a dehydrated green bean rehydrated is not a green bean anymore. It needs to be a freeze-dry green bean. But celery just dries very well, and using it in soups is a flavoring agent. Carrots, onions, all these things, they don't need the higher, more expensive you know, storage. But all of those ingredients are useful for something. They just don't all belong in everything. You know, I had a I had a buddy of mine that, that fancied himself a cook, and he he would make up this seasoning all the time, and he'd he'd start with something terrible like Tony Saturies, and he'd throw a bunch more crap in it. And I remember his wife didn't really like when he cooked, and he's like, everything I cook is good, and she goes, it's all good, but it all tastes the same. If you make a piece of chicken or a piece of steak or a piece of pork, it tastes the same. It's so covered up with the exact same thing, and that's that's what these companies are doing. They're just like, oh, it's all great, shove it all together. Well, that's not how we cook out of our refrigerator. So why would we cook that way out of our pantry? Yeah, no, that's a it's a good point. And and people, um, I mean, they just know what good food is. And and I see now that people are so much smarter um, because they eat out a lot. I think is you know they may not have developed cooking skills um, that afford them all this knowledge, but the trends in food. I mean, when I was uh, 
running all those restaurants, one of the things that I would do all the time, we used to call it benchmarking. It's basically keeping on top of industry trends. So, I mean, if you're, if you can step back and, and not be the programmed person, you can see that there's trends that go through food. I mean, just, I'll just take one ingredient, chipotles, right? Peppers. Yeah. I mean, 10 years ago, nobody, maybe it was 15 years ago, they weren't popular and then they just got into everything. And then, you know, what about kale? I mean, you can't t- walk 10 feet without someone beating you over the head with dried kale chips and, and, this kind of thing goes on with uh, food trends. So I think people, because of that, they're tasting more things. They're becoming more and more educated. And this is where ethnic foods are so popular. You know, and I'll, I'll go back to that again, but I, I use a lot of uh, ethnic dishes in in the course because it's exciting food. And it takes something that's normally bland and boring and makes it exciting. And this is um, this is what's happened. I mean, people, there's so much food media these days. Um, food network, magazines. I mean, people, their knowledge about food has really gone up. Their palates have increased quite a bit. And this is why when folks are trying to build a long-term storable pantry, there's a big disconnect because, you know, a bucket of rice just doesn't seem to add up to something that they're eating in a restaurant. And this is where having skills and having a lot of different resources, you know, we'll probably have 80 videos in the course when it's done. Um, this helps to train people how to cook these dishes at home rather than just buying them. But yeah, I mean, some things just are not good mixed together. I mean, I see it all the time in the, in the barbecue business where people are oh. always wanting to invent these new rubs and stuff. And they, they're just, they're not good. And, and you can't make good barbecue with, with bad spices. Or they, you know, they make the giant burger wrapped in bacon and then they just dump like Casey masterpiece, freaking barbecue sauce on it. And it's like, uh, why are you doing this? And I, I watch the cooking shows, you know, I love to cook myself and these, these restaurants that do these, uh, these, these like stupid sized things. Like, you know, if you can eat the burger in an hour and not die, you get it free or whatever. It, it, there, there's a lot of like the stuff going on that's kind of nonsensical out there. And then I think people bring that home and try to emulate it, which wasn't a good idea in the first place and it gets worse. But then I do think there's a, a heightened awareness of what quality food is because there are so many great, chefs out there doing great things. I remember when I first came to Texas, we went to a, a, it's just like a small chain around here called Fuzzy Tacos. And every taco I had eaten up to that point had been basically, you know, a, a taco shell with some ground beef, cheese, and, 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 and lettuce in it, that, and maybe some sauce. That was it. And so we go into this place, and they have all these different tacos, and I think I like a fish and a beef, and they had different, like, vegetable slaws on them and sauces and things like that. And that's not really speaking of what you're talking about cooking out of the pantry, but what it did for me was immediately change my paradigm on what a taco could be. I, I couldn't believe the flavor in it. And that, that does speak to what you're doing because it's the ethnic dishes. It's the Asian, the, the Hispanic, uh, things like that, that, that really seem to understand flavor palates. I, I think people have said that Vietnamese cooking, because it blends Asian and French, is like the most refined cooking in the world. And yet when you look at it, it's, it's freaking st- uh, stupid simple in ingredients it's all about the technique and the layering yeah no it's a good point and and um i think about you know certain cuisines that are just known for certain flavors and and this is where you know cooking can be so exciting and it can be so rewarding and i mean let's face it americans we're not really known for 
I mean, there's regional cuisine in America, but most of it is imported regional cuisine. Um, the barbecue is one thing. You know, you've got seafood in New England. Uh, I just recently read about a place in, in Utah that they're, they're serving. They had like a cart and they would do like lobster rolls. They would, they, the guy used to be a work on a lobster boat in Maine. So he, he had his friends shipping fresh lobsters out to Utah and they would make lobster rolls and, and it was a big hit. And now they've, now they've turned it into a little restaurant space. So they, they're ser- serving regional, you know, New England style, uh, coastal cuisine in Utah. So people have really woke up in the last, I don't know, decade about different foods and exciting foods. And you do see a lot of interesting, uh, chains out there. And that, that only serves to, to further kind of reinforce what I'm talking about is the more people get, and families too. I mean, look how many kids, um, love burritos and, and love Asian food. And, and I mean, there's so many cultural, you mentioned Vietnamese food and Korean barbecue and, uh, Thai food and all these type of cuisines that are so exciting. They're not very difficult to cook, but they do have certain things in them, like Thai food. It's sweet, spicy, salty, and it has a lot of umami to it. Now, if you try to make some of those dishes and you're missing some of those key ingredients, you know, it's it's challenging. Or you mentioned Vietnamese cuisine. There's five, six years ago, nobody knew what banh mi was. And at one point in Vietnam, there, there was a French influence, and the, the baguette was the result. And, and other things like pork pate. Now, the Vietnamese were crafty enough to take those uh, ingredients that the French oppressors brought in, and now they've created this thing called the banh mi sandwich. And, and it's it's really interesting because it's got – and it has to have the right ingredients. I mean, if you make it with some dopey soft bread from the store, you don't have a banh mi. And if you make it from a super crusty baguette that's almost impossible to bite into it, you don't have a banh mi, but if you've got the right type of French bread and you've got a good pork pate that's smeared on the bun, and then they make this sauce where it's basically, um, it's like umami, dark, kind of, it's got some soy in it, uh, and then they maybe mix it with some mayonnaise, that's the top layer, and then anything can go in there, but usually you'll see, you know, let's just say it's a roast pork banh mi. It's going to have pork pate. It's going to have some roast pork. And then the Vietnamese are famous for pickled vegetables. So they'll have pickled carrots, onions, um, cilantro, all these type of things in there. So you've got this crispness and then you've got the meatiness. You've got the bread and the whole thing is like electric in your mouth. And this example has gone on in so many cuisines around the country that people are really, you know, they're becoming more and more educated. I'm not saying that they're learning great cooking skills. I mean, some of them obviously are. But, you know, those type of people, I think it's smart to translate your long-term storable food pantry. I'm not saying you need to eat Asian food every night because there's nothing wrong with, you know, a big bowl of steaming mashed potatoes and, and uh, you know, some roast beef. But incorporating these flavors into what you can do in the long-term storable pantry, I think it's just a kind of the evolution of, of, you know, cooking and, and definitely, uh, being prepared for an emergency. Well, see what I like about what you're doing now with this course and what I like about what you've been doing over the years with teaching people through your YouTube channel and your, your cooking show that you had and, and just your, your podcasting and everything else is, I think, and I I know this is going to sound like a stretch to some people, but I think one of the fundamental flaws 
in America with, with people not being able to do stuff comes back to people stop learning how to cook. Like when I was in high school, they still had, you know, they called it home ec. And, and mostly girls took it and guys like me took it because you got to eat and you got to hang out with a bunch of girls. You, know, you sort that one out, right? But I mean, like it was, it was still a concept that you know, learning to cook was important, and, and you learned to cook. I learned, I learned things about baking from my grandmother because my grandmother was a fantastic my my Ukrainian grandmother, and the Ukrainian ethnic foods uh, I learned about from her, and and Polish ethnic foods because of the influence around us. Give the woman a piece of steak, and she would destroy it. So I had to learn how to do that on my own because she would. Old country mentality, you had to kill meat, you know, you had to cook it till it, it couldn't move anymore. Um, but, but, but I did had like some grounding in that. When it came to cooking wild game, I had to do that on my own because my mother wouldn't touch it. And that kind of instilled in me. And I kind of feel like people my age, I think you're very close to my age, we're within a couple of years of each other one way or the other, are, are like the last group of people that grew up as kids in their kitchens, not as an exception, but as a rule. Like, you just grew up in the kitchen with grandma or mom or dad or whatever and learning how to actually do this stuff. Because cooking is simple but complicated. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but I think you know what I mean because you're, you're a professional. There's You can give two people the same ingredients, and they can put the exact same amount of ingredients in, but the timing, the application, the technique, all of that stuff matters. And then when you go to cook something and you've had a recipe, and you decide, I want to change it. I want to make it less salty. I want to make it have more basil. I want to do whatever. Or my, my thing that I've always said where people, you give them a recipe to make chicken soup, and it, it calls for fresh parsley, and they don't have any. So now they, they can't go forward and make the soup. Like, when you actually learn how to cook, a recipe is, is a guide. I may decide to, to paint my palate a little bit differently. you know, Or I may, like, that was so good that now I'm going to create my own thing that kind of uses some techniques in it. And because people have lost that, 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 that used to translate across the concept, you know, my, my, my grandfather could have put a new carburetor in his boat motor like in 1962. But in, in, in 1985 when I was fishing with him, he was still tapping on it with a screwdriver in the middle of the lake. But you know what? He got it to run. And that mentality of figuring things out, I think, very much has a genesis in the kitchen. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And, and obviously, in doing what I do and teaching people how to cook, there's certainly a lot of people that are that have that recipe paralysis where they need, you know, they're going through there and, and maybe people don't have a great stocked pantry at home and they want to make something. And they've got almost everything, but then there's one or two things that they don't have. They're done. I mean, a lot of people are just that's a wall. They hit that wall and they, they can't. They can't kind of massage their way out of it. Now, with baking, that's a different story because it's difficult to take a recipe for baking and start swapping things out and expecting uh, duplicatable results. And it's even even if you have all the ingredients in baking, um, one of the things I've been writing about that we're going to be adding to the course on substitutions is, um, you know, people think that you can if it says you know eight ounces that they can you know get the appropriate um, volumetric measure and that it's going to be the same as weighing it. Now, this, this is totally different. And this is where, as you increase your skills, particularly in the baking arena, is getting a scale and weighing the ingredients. Because that's how, like my bread recipes, that those have um, weighed ingredients. That way it's easily duplicatable. But when you translate over to cooking, um, in your example, I mean, you see that all the time where people, I don't have rosemary. Well, do you have fresh thyme? 
Yeah. Well, what about dried thyme? I mean, you can make substitutions like that um, and still have a great dish, but you need to uh, experiment and learn and taste. That's the thing that people don't do is they don't taste their food when they're cooking. And I see a lot of folks, I mean, I was at a, hopefully they're not listening to this episode, but I was at a, um, a little gathering the other night and uh, I went over and I made pizza and I've got this just world-class uh, dough recipe and it, you know, it's not quick. It, it needs to go overnight, but um, the really fine, you know, ultra fancy pizza restaurants use a similar type recipe and it makes that amazing crispy, you know, brick oven type crust. So I was over there cooking pizzas for, for these folks and uh, they had a pot roast because the, the wife just got this new, um, I forget what they call it, but it's like an intelligent pressure cooker. And they're all the rage now. Everybody wants these. And everyone's looking for a shortcut and a way to fit food into their schedule. And this is cool. Now, she had this stew. And, I mean, the meat was so tender. And there was a broth there. But she didn't season it. There was nothing else in it. It was just meat and, I don't know, meat and broth that wasn't seasoned. So it was like we used to say in the restaurant industry, it's dead. You know, as, as a executive chef, I would go around and taste before service a whole line worth of sauces and soups and all that to make sure that these knuckleheaded cooks that were 19 years old there just for the ski skiing pass, you know, that they made some good stuff. And a lot of times we say, no, that's dead. And it's just, it's cooked well, it's got the right ingredients, but nobody's tasted it and adjusted the seasonings. And I see this all the time with foods. You know, here's a good example. I made this dish the other night um and it was a it was a stew recipe and it was it was based on it was a thai stew so thai food uh flavored stew and it, it was um and i had sticky rice which is a great thing to have in your pantry because it's totally different it's glutinous rice it's another thing that you can easily get and store and have a completely different experience with it but my wife i made the dish and, you know, I, I serve a lot of plated meals here where I'll, I'll plate everybody's meal up and serve it to them, and it looks pretty and it tastes great. So I kind of – it was one of these things where I looked at my wife and I just – I was I knew I shouldn't have said anything. I was biting my tongue, and she's on the other end of the table. And I had went to the bathroom right before the meal was served, and I, you know, I cooked it for about an hour. And she took the rice, put it in the bottom of the bowl, and just, like, sauced this thing over the top, and it, it just looked like – it looked terrible, you know, and it tasted good, but, and she put it in front and I just, I couldn't, I mean, you're married, Jack, you, you know, you're not supposed to do this, but I said, couldn't you have just waited five minutes? I go, who wants to, I go, and I, I played it mine. I said, this is what it was supposed to look like. And I go, look at that. I mean, that, it just looks like, <laughs> I don't know what I said, but it, it wasn't very nice, but it, that's the thing. It's just the difference. Even plating the food, if you just stop and step back and think about, like I'm always thinking when I make a dish, and this goes back to the restaurant, um, what's the final plate going to look like? Because we would draw, literally draw schematics in pencil of our dishes of, of how we were going to serve the food. And then we would uh, make those dishes and we would shoot photographs, trying to make it bulletproof for these knuckleheaded people that we had to hire that, you know, I, I remember one girl that, she she never never even knew what a halibut was and and I had to you know cook it for her and she was like what is this I said it's halibut it's a fish oh you know so people don't have the the great um, knowledge of it but if you 
a lot of people are so close is what I'm trying to say. They're right there. If they just put a little thought in it and start to practice and make substitutions and swap in and out, um, like that stew the other night, man, that was a teaspoon of salt and a couple of carrots away from being world class. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think that there's, there, there's just so much that like, that's why you put a course together. You, you, you can, you, and I think that's why it's important. Like you do a lot of things with, you know, the visual and in video because you can sit and tell someone how to do something on an audio show like we do here. And I think with cooking, that person has to have some level of a base skill. If you're giving them something to, totally new to be able to just hear it in audio and go do it. And I think they also need a confidence build too. That like, it's amazing to me how good people become at cooking so fast. And I, I, I don't think it's because, well, they're brilliant and they memorized a bunch of recipes. I think it's because once they make a few things and those things come out good, they become a lot more uh, fearless in what they're doing. And I, I've always been fearless with my cooking because I feel like, well, if it sucks, it's not going to kill me. I can eat something that sucks once, and then I know not to do that again. But I think a lot of people, especially younger people, you know, let's say, you know, the, third, the early 30 and under crowd, It seems like part of the reason that generation, they call the millennials generation, struggles is it's been reinforced to them so many times that it's not okay to screw something up. And, and I'm going to go out on a limb here. You've been doing this for 20-odd years professionally. Do you still occasionally cook something and screw it up? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I would have no, believed that, you if you said no. Yeah. Yeah, no, people don't understand that. Like sometimes, and again, a lot of times it's um, – It's time, like, a, for instance, I made a lasagna the other night, and the kids were watching, of all things, on TV. Like I said to my 14-year-old, you're, you're going to melt your brain listening to, you know what it was, is, uh, what's a dumb cat? Uh, I can't even think of the name of it. Garfield. Garfield. Yeah, and if you watch the, it's, it's on Netflix, and one of the dudes from Cheech and Chong, he's Garfield. Oh. So I, I don't like cartoons to start with, and then I'm over here cooking, listening to that Cheech and Chong guy the whole time. But this cat apparently is interested in lasagna, and I never knew this, and I kept hearing lasagna, lasagna. And I'm like, what's with the lasagna? Oh, that's all he wants to eat, Dad. So I said, really? And it was 4 o'clock. Yeah. I said, you, should I make you guys lasagna tonight? And they were like, you know, this is one of the benefits of having a chef as a dad. Yeah. I, they said, yeah, we want lasagna. I said, okay. So I zipped out um, to the store because I wanted to get some grass-fed beef for this lasagna. I had everything else in the pantry. And when I got home, it's, of course, I, st I had a coffee at the store. It's 4.45 now. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, I'm, I'm in a pinch for time. So I just, uh, I didn't use my normal um, pasta sauce method. So I just whipped something together. And uh, it wasn't good. <laughs> I mean, the kids liked it. But to me, it, it was, uh, you know, it was a time issue. And I rushed. And so, sure, I mean, if you're not, If you're not making mistakes, you're not trying enough new things. And, and uh, I mean, there's plenty of dishes. I mean, we've done tons, and this is why in the, in the restaurant business, when you're planning menus, you're cooking a lot of things. Some things just don't work. So in, in order to avoid that in the course, I mean, one of the things people should know is, I mean, I've done a lot of video where, where I'm on the camera. In other words, it's my face, it's me. And those are very difficult to produce because you have – to sync audio, there's there's chore choreography that goes along with that, two cameras, the whole thing. In the course, it's just the food is the star. So it's usually from my elbows down, and I show people exactly right in the on the cutting board, in the pot, 
whatever it might be, exactly how to do it step by step. Each, uh, I don't think we've done a recipe yet that doesn't have a accompanying, you know, high definition video. So yeah, I mean, it, it's, I try to make it as bulletproof as possible for, for people to duplicate the dishes. But in the end, you know, there's some things that you may want to change. Like I'm looking right here at this uh, dish that we did. It's a uh, elk bolognese with, uh, over pasta basically. And it's, it's an unbelievable dish. And, you know, if you're not interested in elk, you gotta, you can't say, oh, can't make the dish. Well, what about beef? What about buffalo? Um, what about Italian sausage? I don't know. You could swap it out, but it's, uh, it's, it's a really interesting dish. And, and it's, uh, I guess the course is more than just a survival food course. I mean, that's definitely the way we're thinking about it. But, um, if you take the course and start working through these recipes, you're going to develop what I call culinary inventory. Cause most people, man, they know five things and they, they cook the hell out of those five things. But in this course, that when we finish it up, there'll be over, you know, 50, 60, probably 80 is, is the number that I think, uh, recipes and videos. So, um, right now there's like 32 of them that are live in the course. You start developing ways to cook with these foods. All of a sudden you're, you're getting an education, um, that's transferable into a tough time someday. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think that, um, when, when we, when we look at it that way, what we're really talking about is this is a course on cooking. We just have to be using a lot of ingredients that are storable, right? That, that's really the way. Like, so it's like going to art and we happen to be using oils and canvas. But if right. you take a course on how to use oils and canvas, you're going to be better at sketching. So it yeah, doesn't no matter if we if we change out where the meat's coming from. So maybe this can be made. So if you're making something, could be made with uh, uh, freeze dried roast beef cubes. Well, then it would certainly be able to be made with that leftover piece of roast beef, right? So like that, there's not really a limitation there. It's expanding the knowledge of how to cook, and to the point where you can use these storable goods, which. We all use, you were talking about canned cheese or canned butter earlier. And like, I never realized how much canned cheese and canned butter is still used in the world. When I was at, I think I, I don't think you were able to get there, but I was in, cause you had left North Carolina. I was at the expo in North Carolina and we went by this booth and they had this canned cheese and they were giving out little samples of it and we ate it and it was like, that's actually kind of like a better version of Velveeta. And they were in these little cans and it's like, that's a calorically dense, Thing. So I bought a case of it, and when I looked at it, like it had this, these like Arabic markings on it. So I didn't really care, but I went back just to ask the guy about it. He goes, he goes, oh yeah, in the Middle East, it's like a huge thing. They do canned butter and canned cheese everywhere because they have a lot of places are still off grid and stuff like that. And so these are things that people have used in this country, you know, extensively just a hundred years ago, and are still using in many parts of the world today. And we're just taking that as your your source of your your ingredients. Yeah, no, that's a it's a that's a good point. And uh, I remember the first time I tried that uh, canned cheese, and it was actually um, there was a Midwestern college, and they they had you know so it was branded with whatever the college was, you know the the mascot and all that stuff. And uh, so I looked at it, and the first thing I noticed because somebody had it, uh, there was a, like a dinner party. And they didn't mention it was canned cheese. I mean, obviously it came out of a can because it was shaped like a can. But a few people had, had eaten on it already, and it just looked like a round of cheese. Um, 
when you take it right out of the can, you can see obviously that's where it gets its shape. But a few people had eaten off of it, and I went over there, and, and I was like, wow, that, I mean, it was sharp cheddar. It was really good cheese. And then you come to find out, I asked the host, you know, where did that come from? And she took me into her pantry. She had a few more cans. She actually gave me a can. She's like, yeah, it's, I think it was like Wisconsin badger cheese. I'm not sure, but it was really good. And, and those type of things are amazing. Like I order these um, curry pastes and they come in little cans and they're, they're made in Thailand. I mean, this stuff's brilliant to keep and it'll last forever in the pantry. But imagine, you know, taking some freeze dried chicken and some red curry and jasmine rice all right out of the pantry. Maybe there's a few other things added to it. You can create a great meal. So there's nowadays there's just so many things that you can store that, you know, again, the, the course is it's, it's more than it's an ice storm. Get out the bucket of miserable beans and be happy with it. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things you can do with, with food nowadays. And I mean, everybody in this audience probably knows about Yoder's bacon. I mean, that's probably the, the greatest convenient food of all time. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've, I think I've, I've improved their stock value uh, by talking about that, especially early on. Because, see, that was an example of something right there. Like, Yoder's bacon wasn't survival food when I was a kid. My grandmother had it and kept cans of it in the kitchen. And we didn't eat it a lot, but it would be, you know, that little can, you open it up, and there's like 60 pieces of bacon jammed in there. Yeah, I think there's like the equivalent of like three pounds of cooked bacon in there. Yeah, so that would be like when there's a bunch of people just showed up out of nowhere and she had to cook breakfast, right? Because if you got to cook that much bacon, first of all, it's expensive, but second of all, it takes time to cook a big piece of bacon down. That stuff's pre-cooked, you throw it in the skillet, it's there for you know a few moments, and then it's nice and it's crisped up a little bit, it tastes like real bacon again, you know, because it comes out of there, it's... I think I did a video where I showed people what it looks like when you take it out. It's it's like, how do they get that much in there? You pull it out, you go, oh, that's how. Wax paper and a lot of pushing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's that's an example. Like, in the, in the you know, 70s and 80s, we ate that occasionally because it was right there in the cabinet, you know, and that's that, that can be that again. So kind of wrapping up here, can you tell people, like, how does this course actually work? Uh, how do they, how do, you know, once people sign up, what, what happens? How do they interact with you, that type of thing? Well, if they go to uh, foodstoragefeast.com or if they just go to harvesteating.com, along the top they'll see food storage feast link there. And you just you join the, the course, so you're a student of the course. And when you enroll in the course, we're going to send you updates because we're continually adding to the course. So what's there now is nowhere near what the completed content will be. So you'll get a, you'll get an update when new resources are added, new recipes and all that. And then eventually once we're complete, um, my writer is turning this into an ebook. And this isn't just like some sloppy cut and paste ebook. I mean, this guy is super anal. Uh, I've nicknamed him Rain Man throughout the, <laughs> the creation of the course because he wants, uh, I mean, it looks like you know, a beautiful book. So it's going to be really well formatted and all the recipes will be in there. But when you're on the website taking the course, it's a series of modules and lessons. So you, you when you log in for the first time or, or come back to the site for that matter, everything is broken into like a tree type structure. So, you know, for instance, I'm looking at it now, there's a welcome uh, lesson and then it has a few more things. And as you go through there, you can click complete at the bottom and it'll put a check mark in. And then when you come back, you know that you've read that again. But they're all modules 
and then inside the modules are lessons, and you go through, and you can refer to any lesson you want. Like if, let's just say you went to the store and you had a great deal on potato flakes, you could come to the um, potato flakes section and cook on that, and there's going to be information about potato flakes where we try to educate people on how these ingredients are made and, and basic guidelines on using them. Um, and then they can, um, you know, look at the recipes and, and the videos that are part of the course like that. So that's how you do it. And right now we're, we're doing, um, for anybody is a, a $30, you know, under construction sort of discount because the, co- the course will be 199 when it's done. So people can sign up for one, 69 right now and the good thing is if you get in at 169 we're going to continue to add more and more resources and over time making it more valuable plus you'll get the ebook so it's a good value and and uh just a reminder anybody that's msb uh the best deal on the internet is is for the msb members where they'll get about 70 bucks off so um if you're not an msb definitely i mean I'm, I think it's what is it fifty dollars for fifty dollars a year, and I mean you can join for five bucks a month if you want to. Um, yeah, well they'll save seventy bucks off the course right there. So that's uh, I mean I've knocked myself on the head a few times after I've bought stuff and then realized you dumbass I could have logged <laughs> into my MSB and saved whatever the vendor was was giving because we give fifteen percent um, on our stuff and that comes out to about I guess seventy bucks off there. Yeah, yeah, that, I mean we should remind people of that so. Uh, we have, I have it listed two different places in the MSB because it's done a little differently for the course. But Chef Keith's stuff on, on harvesteating.com, all of his seasonings and stuff like that, is 15% all the time for you guys. And if you use this stuff as much as I do, because your steak seasoning is just freaking awesome, um, then that pays for MSB. But this, if you're going to take this course and you're not MSB, I know this is a little shameless self-promotion here, but... If you can save 70 bucks on something by buying something else for 50 bucks and then you get both of them, then you kind of have to be a common core math student to not do that, right? I mean, I, I just, I, I can't even imagine. Like, I remember, I used to buy a lot of stuff from this place called Sportsman's Guide. And uh, they always had this buyer's club thing. And it was kind of expensive. And I, I didn't buy that much from them. And then one day I decided to buy, Briggs and Stratton made this uh, air-cooled, five horsepower uh, outboard boat motor and it was like 700 bucks and I'm like well if I join buyers club I get $20 to the positive if I do that when I buy this motor so then yeah I became a buyers club member because duh it just paid for itself and I put 20 bucks back in my pocket so you kind of did that here to a a, a, a large degree and I I appreciate that Keith I really do yeah well I think um I think it's a it's a good value, and obviously I want to give back to the to the audience because you know I don't I don't know if I tell you a lot, but the the people out there in TSP land, the MSB members, and just the regular listeners are are um, great supporters of harvest eating. A lot of people out there using my spices. You mentioned that uh, steak seasoning. I just came out with a new one, uh, by the way, and uh, I'd have to I don't want to say blame you, but give you credit because at one point you told me that. You love my Montana steak. That's my number one seller. But sometimes you would put it through a spice grinder to make it yeah. a little more uniform because it's got a lot of chunks and seeds. Well, I said, you know what? Maybe I should maybe I should offer a version of it where I grind it. And I thought that's a pain in the butt. So I came out with a new blend. It's called the Steakhouse Blend, and it's really a simple blend. And uh, I got to tell you, man, I used it several times recently. But over Christmas, when I was out in Colorado, I we did a standing rib roast with that. And the only thing I did is I put just a teeny bit of oil on the rib roast 
and then coated in the, in this steakhouse blend, dude, it was it was killer. So that um, that's going to be added to a lot of people buy the we've got a TSP um, spice pack, and I am now adding that in there. That's that's a really great one. But well, you got yeah. you just talked about. I'm on your site right now trying to buy it. And the steakhouse, but it's not on your your store. No, I know. I came out with it like right. three days before I went uh, on vacation for okay. two weeks. But you don't worry because I've, I've already put one in the mail to you and Dorothy as a okay. late Christmas present. All right. I mean, that sounds great. And, uh, you know, I've discovered sous vide lately, and that sounds like it'd work really good with sous vide steak. That's, 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 we're not going to go there, though, because we'll have a whole new show if we do that, right? Oh, uh, yeah. That's an awesome subject, though. Yeah. So anyway, Keith, I appreciate you being with us today. And again, folks, you can uh, you can sign up uh, for Chef Keith's course by going to foodstoragefeast.com. Uh, I would recommend that you go there to find out about it and don't sign up that way. Get your MSB membership or log into your MSB account and go get it for $129. Bucks. Um, that that would be the more economical way to do it. But if you want to go give Keith, you know, full price, that's okay too. I'm I'm fine with that. I'm sure he wouldn't. He's not going to be upset about it. Um, but it, it is a is a great course. Um, I think that it's also something that a lot of couples are trying to figure out things to do together. And and I think this and and families too to have like family things. I could see you know a family taking this and saying, well, once a week, you know, even if not everybody does the whole going through all the coursework, once a week we're going to make something out of the, the course together. You know, you're going to turn off the freaking smartphone or I'm going to throw it in the toilet, right? And we're all <laughs> going to come in the kitchen and we're going to make something from the course. I think that would be a great, you know, family bonding. And then you're getting so much more value because a family of four is four students, but to you it's one. That's the magic of the Internet. Right. Yeah, well, I, uh, I encourage people to take it, looking for any feedback. And, and those of you that uh, want to ask questions or whatever, we've got a forum set up uh, on TSP about harvest eating. You can ask questions about food storage fees. But, Jack, I totally appreciate you having me on. And, and uh, as always, thanks to everybody out there. And uh, ask some questions for the expert council. I know I've got a couple in the, in the queue, so uh, happy to answer any questions for you guys. Absolutely, guys. Make sure you uh, get questions in for Chef Keith. And uh, the rest of the expert council as well. Good plug for the counselor. Keith, again, thank you for being with us today on the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. Well, that was a great interview. I always love hanging out and talking to Keith, man. It's just it's like talking to a friend. And we share that passion for cooking and for teaching people. So I really want to recommend you consider taking this course. And I do think for some of you guys uh, that are couples that are looking for something to do together, something more bonding, it'd be great. And those of you with children, you know, just as long as they're old enough to uh, – to contribute in any way in the kitchen, it can be something for the whole family. Check it out again. It's at foodstoragefeast.com. But remember, get your discount, get your discount, get your discount. And if you're not a member yet, it's worth becoming a member just to get your discount. All right. Uh, with that, let's uh, remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do, the best way to support us is join the MSB. We kind of talked about why you would do that today anyway, so I'll let it go there. The other way you can support us is by doing your shopping at Amazon.com. Through TSPAZ, T-S-P-A-Z.com, The Survival Podcast. Amazon is what that stands for. TSPAZ.com. It's one letter less than Amazon, by the way. It takes one less letter to get there. You go to TSPAZ, you see a link, you click it, you're on Amazon. Boom, like magic. You're just there. It's the same Amazon you always go to. You find your stuff, you do your shopping, you buy it. It costs you not one thin dime more to shop at Amazon and support us than it does to shop at Amazon and not support us. 
So you do that, we get your support, and you get our content. And I think it's a great uh, value for value exchange. And me, I'm the kind of guy that always wants to bring you more value. So every weekday, uh, during most weeks anyway, I bring you an item of the day. And uh, today's item of the day is from another expert council member. It is the book, The Hands-On Home, by the amazing Erica Strauss. Let me tell you, I was, I was sitting there today thinking, what am I going to do for item of the day? And I went, you dummy. You big dumb dummy. I mean, Erica's been on our expert council for like two years now, and you haven't put her book up as item of the day? It's a great book, you big dummy jack. So I put it up there. This book is awesome. It's got so much information. It's so many recipes in it. And you're probably thinking about food right now anyway. So it'd be a good day to check out The Hands-On Home by Erica Strauss. And remember, it doesn't matter. As long as you're going to go to Amazon anyway, just go through T-Spaz and you can support us. But consider picking up The Hands-On Home today by our own Erica Strauss. And with that, let's hear about our song of the day. Um, the, the fact that the episode was 1929. And the year then was 1929, and we talked about the great stock market crash that led us into the Great Depression, made me think about hard times. And some of the hard times we seem to have come through with some sort of anemic recovery that we're in right now. But it also made me think about how, as I said at the beginning of the show, there is, there, there is reason for concern with a, with a market with underlying fundamentals that don't really match the, you know, Dow at 20,000. And then there's this whole automation thing we talk about all the time. And, you know, we were talking about cooking from your preps today with Chef Keith Snow to the point where your preps aren't preps anymore. They're just ingredients that you use. They're just storable, so you have lots of them, and they're cheap, so you have lots of them. And I really think we may be heading to a time in America at some point in the future where at least during some level of transition, we're going to have to maybe do that. That more people that are preppers today are going to be better off for being preppers tomorrow because they'll actually be difficulty economically. I really think that's a possibility. It's why I recommend investing in yourself. And that's, that's one thing about Chef's Course, right? You're investing in yourself. That's, that's something to really think about there. And we need to be investing in ourselves. Because if we're only planning on being okay because of a job or employment or what have you, and we don't have a plan B and C and D and E, and frankly, friggin' plan F if we're smart, we could be left out to cold. And I was looking through some different songs today, and I found this song that you know came out, I think, in 2009 or 2010 in the middle of the Great Recession, which I think is just grandiose language to make ourselves feel like we're as, we're as tough as those people who went through the Great Depression, and we're not. Uh, but it's called Shutting Detroit Down. And the video that I have linked actually is the official music video. I didn't use it for this because it's got a lot of dialogue in it that wouldn't work well. So I just played the regular music for you today. But you might want to go by the blog today and take a look at this video. It's something that happened to countless Americans through the Great Recession. And it, this is what I mean about anemic recovery. The, the TV people, the MSM, will tell you about the, you know, uh, the, the, the weak GDP growth, uh, which is even weaker than it sounds, by the way, because they changed the way they calculate GDP and now promises are part of GDP, which is just stupid. But that's not really what I mean. What I mean is even when we can look and say that 
legitimately, unemployment is lower than it was. The amount of money the average person is making is less. For people that are ma- you know that make everyday salaries, they're making less money. Because people like the guy featured in this video that loses his job in you know an auto assembly factory, they they didn't get jobs that paid what they were making before if they found a job. Many of them are no longer considered unemployed. They're just not employed. What do you mean by that? Well, they're not employed because they don't have a job, but they're not unemployed because they they atrophied off of the unemployment role, and 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 they're not being counted. The workforce participation number is lower than it was when Barack Obama took office. So these are facts. And it, it, we lose sight of the people that, that are affected by these downturns, especially if we personally aren't. This song tries to put you in touch with those people. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Card for your dollar and you never pass the lane when you don't go your way. Now I see all these big shots whining on my evening news about how they're losing billions and it's up to me and you to come running to the rescue. They're selling make-believe and we don't buy that here. Cause in the real world they're shutting Detroit down While the boss man takes his bonus pay and jets on out of town D.C.'s bailing out them bankers as a farmer's option City town here in the real world, they're shutting Detroit down. Here in the real world, they're shutting Detroit down. Well, that old man's been working in that plant most all his life. Now his pension plan's been cut in half, and he can't afford to die, and it's a crying shame. See his callous tears. Well, let me tell you, friend, it gets me.
York City town. Here in the real world, they're shutting Detroit down. Here in the real world, they're shutting Detroit down. In the real world, they're shutting Detroit down.